Tommy was living proof of the paradox that big things sometimes come in small packages. In fact, his size would always present something of a contradiction, starting with his birth at a whopping 10 pounds 3 ounces. This was quite a curiosity, given that his dad stood only at 5'8", with his mom at least 6 inches shorter. You can imagine the good-natured ribbing that both parents got. The jibes, although well-intentioned, started to wear after a while, but they gradually diminished as Tommy got older and started school. It was clear by then that he would follow his parents and go from being a small child to a small adult. Tom's dad, who was known for his frugality, saw an upside to this. He almost always took advantage of children five and under admitted free types of opportunities. However, although it may have saved the Ferraro family a few dollars here and there, it certainly did nothing for little Tommy's self-image. It seemed he would always be the last to be chosen when a group of boys chose sides for a baseball game or to play volleyball in the park. He even began to accept mascot status as his fate. That is, until the St. Cologero Festival during the summer between his 7th and 8th grade. The festival was always held between the first and second weekends in July. La Festa began on the first Sunday with a high mass in St. Patrick's Church. A life-size painted statue of Frenchtown's patron saint was added to the more familiar cast of characters who held sway for the rest of the year. Jesus, St. Joseph, the Virgin Mary, etc. The carnival opened that afternoon and stayed open until the following Sunday night. It was encamped at Mount Carmel in North Thompsonville. While there is a biblical connection to the name, the Mount Carmel of La Festa was decidedly secular, consisting of a brick building with a large empty field alongside. The field served as a venue for local softball leagues, and the bar on the first floor of the Mount Carmel building served 25-cent drafts and 60-cent mixed drinks to Mount Carmel Society members. You could become a member by contributing a one-time fee of $2 and signing a book just inside the door. A second-floor multifunction space was also available to members for weddings, anniversaries, family reunions, wakes, etc. The carnival, with its neon lights, merry-go-round calliope music, and the aroma of all foods friable from the vendors and cooking tent, was a magnet for French townies of all ages, especially the kids who were drawn like moths to a flame. Many families even postponed scheduling family vacation outings and trips until after La Festa. There were hoop toss games, balloon and dart games, a shooting gallery, wheels of chance, dime toss games. Land a dime on a painted circle and win a prize. Ski ball, a water gun horse race game, and on and on. There were rides like the Ferris wheel, the whip, the scrambler, the tilt-a-whirl, and a ride the kids dubbed the Pukesalot, which consisted of a long pivoted arm with rocket ships at each end. The arms seesawed up and down while the rocket ships spun, hence the name. Nothing could be more fun than loading up on cotton candy, soda, and fried dough, followed by a ride on the Pukesalot with the predictable result, and then starting the cycle all over again. Add to the atmosphere the merry-go-round calliope, piped in Dean Martin and Al Martino Italian-American favorites, the bells, the yells, the screams, and a local band of teens who subscribed to the old musical adage, If you can't play good, play loud. And you had a feast for both stomachs and senses. Tommy loved it all. Every little bit. He, John, and Joanne were even allowed to walk there and back, escorted by Joanne's older sister, Alicia, and her boyfriend, Wally. It was almost a mile, but through neighborhoods pronounced safe, 
So Alicia and Wally cut the small fry loose as soon as they had gone far enough to be out of parental supervision sight. Once they're on the grounds of the consecrated carnival, Joanne usually peeled off to join other preteen hens, and John usually headed out on a five-finger discount shopping expedition to see how many stuffed animals he could liberate rather than win. I went over to check out the band. That left Tommy to entertain himself with a pocket full of change. One night in particular, as the carnival was approaching its 10 o'clock curfew, Tommy wandered over to a roped-off section behind the tents. There he met Buddy Pyro, the master of disaster. At least that was how Bud Partucci billed himself on the painted side of his small trailer, which featured him dressed in a tuxedo replete with top hat and white gloves, each hand grasping bunches of lit firecrackers and rockets, a maniacal grin, and a huge mushroom cloud forming a dramatic, ominous backdrop. In reality, Bud wasn't much larger than Tommy. Fifty-ish, balding, smelling like he could use a shower, and chain-smoking Lucky Strikes. He was unpacking what appeared to be baseballs and softballs wrapped in tissue paper, except that each ball had a protruding wick about three inches long. When Tommy asked if he could watch, Bud, grateful for the momentary notoriety, agreed. He explained to Tommy that fireworks weren't launched by rockets as the public generally assumed, but they were actually lowered into mortars, metal cylinders of different sizes he called cans, and ground-launched when he lit their wicks. Tommy saw a lot of Chinese characters on the packaging, but each work, as Bud called them, also had an English name, like chrysanthemum, peony, diadem, willow, rings, etc. By the time Bud finished explaining how works differed by name, Father Forte came on the sound system to announce the end of the day's activities, to thank everyone for turning out, to remind them that the carnival would reopen the next day at three, and to give a blessing. When the prayer ended, Bud went to work lighting the fuses with a glowing cigar. Tommy was in heaven. The thump whoosh of each work, not to mention the smell of black powder, sulfur, and saltpeter, the sparks and glowing trails were all intoxicating. The crowning glory came when Bud looked around to make sure they were unobserved and handed the stogie to Tommy, pointed at a wick, and said, There, light that one. Tommy did, and his brain exploded along with the work. He stared at Bud with glassy eyes. Bud said, Better than sex, ain't it? Tommy nodded eagerly, although he wasn't in much of a position to validate that claim. Tommy became Bud's shadow for the remaining nights of La Festa. He learned all about how to put on a whoosh-bang show, as Bud called it. He learned all about works and cans, screamers and whistlers, dubs, duds, and flubs, snakes and bow ties, how to load, how to prime, and how to charge, all while helping Bud set up before and clean up after. Although no one would ever mistake Bud for a stockbroker or a lawyer, he was, in his own way, very professional when it came to how he did what he did. Safety was everything. He never took a shortcut, and he double-checked everything. He told Tommy that he both knew and knew of too many guys like himself who couldn't count to ten using their fingers because they were missing too many. Some even lost whole hands. Some lost eyes. He also explained how a good display was more than just shooting off works at random and saving a few for a grand finale. According to Bud, a good display controlled a rube's... A rube was a customer. ...eyes without the rube even knowing it. For instance... You start a display with some ground effects like volcanoes to get the rube looking down. Volcanoes were cone-shaped works that shot colorful sparks up three or four feet. 
Then, you progress to skeletal wooden frames called Dead Men, with attachment points at eye level for St. Catherine wheels. Which spun like crazy, creating enormous circles of colored sparks. Now the Rube's eyes were angled up about 20 degrees above eye level. Then you hit him with low aerials to raise the angle to 30 degrees, then mid-level aerials to reach 45 degrees, and finally to heavies to get the angle up to 60 degrees where the oohs and ahs really got cranking. Once you got a Rube to that point, you could take him wherever you wanted. 30 degrees, 60, 45, back to 60, then down to 30 again, and the Rubes would follow like sheep. Better than sex, old Bud would say. Better than sex. On La Festa's final night, Bud set off a special display with works he'd kept in reserve for the occasion. The display was longer, larger, higher, and louder than anything he'd done up to now, and it culminated in a special work called... Mother of Millions. Which made the Death Star exploding look and sound like a cherry bomb. The ground literally shook, and the flash was virtually thermonuclear. Babies cried. Little girls... And a few boys... Wet themselves. An older woman fainted. Old men sporting VFW caps compared it to aerial bombardment. Father Forte, his arms outstretched, shouted... Miraculo! And Sister Kerosina thought she might have orgasmed. Thereby proving Bud's adage... Better than sex. Even before Tommy and Bud parted ways and Al Martino sang Aldila for the final time... Tommy was devising a plan. Tommy saw a market for his newfound expertise in the form of house parties, weddings, anniversaries, birthdays, graduations, first communions, coming out parties, in short, social occasions of every shape and size. He knew from his own upbringing that next to eating and fighting, Italian-Americans loved fireworks most of all. So he knew he had an audience if allowed to perform his magic, and if he could acquire product. For this, he looked to Bud. The arrangement was this. Tommy would front the money. Bud would buy the product. Tommy would book the gigs. They'd put on the show together and split the profit evenly. Bud's half of the partnership would be silent. The face on the business was Tommy's and his alone. Little Tommy Ferraro was now Big Tommy Nitro. Selling this concept to his parents was no easy task. His father was skeptical. His mother was dead set against it. The one thing Tommy had going for him was his cousins, his mom's sister's sons. They were generally boorish and boastful, each one an overachiever, each full of himself, as Tommy's dad would say. Lawrence, a.k.a. Larry, was an accomplished track and field athlete with a cupboard full of cups and medals. The Pan-Italian Games were his showcase, and there was talk about the Olympics. George was the scholar in the family, with perfect scores on his SATs. A range of scholarships from some of America's best colleges was at his disposal. Finally, Mark was set to assume control of the family business, a prosperous lumberyard and building supply company where he already supervised employees who were more than twice his age. Each of the boys wore the nicest clothes, ate the best food, and drove his own late-model car. Not new, their father would proudly say, but new-ish. After all... We don't want to spoil them. This pronouncement was always accompanied by winks and backslaps delivered to the listener. Tommy used his cousins to make his case. Each one of them had his own thing. Tommy didn't have a thing. Tommy needed a thing. Big Tommy Nitro could be his thing. Tommy's proposal was followed with what seemed to him to be an interminable period of discussion and deliberation. 
His parents met Bud. Tommy subtly suggested that he shower first. Who told them that he was impressed by Tommy's maturity and his entrepreneurial spirit. Bud liked Tommy, but he also liked the ka-ching sound a cash register made. Tommy's parents were impressed by Bud's professional demeanor and by the fact that he had treated Tommy parentally, as his mom put it. That was followed a week later by a field trip to Bud's cabin, where, because it was well off the beaten path, Tommy and Bud could demonstrate safe pyrotechnic practices without attracting unwanted attention. But what ultimately sold Tommy's mom was the Ferraro's attendance at Cousin George's he was the scholar. graduation party, which was professionally catered and featured a live band and an open bar. Tommy's mom and her sister had always been unspoken rivals, so when George's mom revealed that St. George had been granted a full scholarship to Trinity College in Hartford, Tommy's mom countered with a knee-jerk response about her own son's startup business. And before you could say whoosh-bang, Big Tommy Nitro was in business. Business cards were printed along with posters and flyers, where a blank space was left for Tommy to marker in the dates, time, and location of his next gig. He even took out ads in the St. Calodro Society newsletter, the Mount Carmel Bulletin, and most importantly, the St. Patrick's Church and Church School Reminder. Where Tommy added the word devotional to his advertising pitch. The centerpiece of each poster and flyer was a black and white photo of Tommy's face wearing his best power expression superimposed over a drawing he copied from one of those Charles Atlas comic book ads showing a strong man's physique, to which Tommy added lightning bolts clutched in both hands. His first big gig finally came at the St. Patrick's Fall Festival, which was staged over Labor Day weekend in the parking lot just outside the church school. It was sort of La Festa light, with fewer rides, games, and concessions. To enhance the autumnal vibe, scarecrows, jack-o'-lanterns, black-stuffed cats, and ghosts were won as prizes. A haunted house, which was basically a truck trailer with spooky music and creepy black-like paintings inside, was added to the small group of rides, and corn on the cob, clam chowder, and Indian pudding were added to the traditional burgers, dogs, and fries menu. Tommy's part of the show went quite well, thanks largely to Bud's behind-the-scenes know-how and some perfect weather. He managed, mostly through family, friends, and relatives, to book additional gigs at two county fairs, three weddings, and a department store grand opening. By then, the market for whoosh-bang shows was beginning to season out, as Bud called it. Tommy did one last big gig at a Halloween fest sponsored by St. Stephen's Catholic Church just across the border in Massachusetts, and that, as they say, was that. He and Bud packed everything up in Bud's trailer. They then met to make sure expenses had been covered and that they had divided the proceeds fairly. Bud was happy and said that he was sure they'd do even better next season, which, in New England, started up again in May. In the meantime, Bud would be heading south to the Carolinas, Georgia, and Florida, where the demand for his services would continue. He promised to keep in touch with postcards, but they both knew he wouldn't. And he didn't. As for Big Tommy Nitro, well, although his season had ended, his reputation was made, especially where his peers were concerned. And that, of course, was what mattered most of all. From now on, he was Tommy Ferraro. The little was gone once and for all in everyone's mind, including his own. And that, Tommy concluded, really was better than sex. At least for the present. Thank you for listening to this episode of Frenchtown. 
Remember that new episodes drop on Mondays at midnight, so please continue to join us. Frenchtown was written and produced by Jim Gatto. The principal readers are Dana Schatz and Jeffrey Anbinder. The technical director is David Keith. Introductory and playout music was written and performed by Lisa Spike Norman. Whoever You Are and I'm Coming Home Again were written by Jim Gatto. It's Almost Tomorrow was also written by Jim Gatto based on an idea from Lorraine Nelson. Additional musical recording was provided by Chrissy Gardner, Ryan Gardner, Gracie Price, and Megan Keith. The Frenchtown graphic design is courtesy of Carolyn Kamerska. Special thanks go to associate producer Kathy Keith and to Lorraine Nelson, Stephanie Levine, and Elaine Bissett. Frenchtown is a fictionalized memoir. Although some of the places mentioned existed at one time, they are either gone now or vastly different from what they were over 60 years ago. The characters are composites of friends and relatives I once knew, but they were not modeled on individuals who actually existed. Any resemblance to people or places is unintentional and coincidental. The entire contents of Frenchtown is copyrighted. For further information about Frenchtown and its contributors, please send inquiries to frenchtowninfo at gmail.com. Let it roll on.